Hey there, friends. You are listening to How to Live the Podcast, where we have real, meaningful, and fun conversations with people who inspire us. And sometimes we just have them with each other. We are your hosts, Jess and Steph Dadon. Happy Tuesday, friends. Imagine if Tuesdays were happy. That would be lovely. Tuesdays are happy. Why can't they be happy? I just feel like Tuesday energy isn't that good. Like Monday is kind of like you're excited for the week. Wednesday's halfway through. Friday is the best day, clearly. But you're right. Tuesdays are kind of forgotten. Yeah, but I guess that's why it's good that we launch our podcast on a Tuesday because that makes the day happy. True. Happy listening. And speaking of happy listening... I have a really fun announcement that my best friend, King Cora, well, her real name's Corsi, but her artist name is King Cora, and she's a big fan of this podcast. She even is the singer of our theme song and the writer of it, and she's just come out with her very first single. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I haven't even listened to it yet. I know, you're going to love it. So you can listen to it if you just Google set me free King Cora. How do you spell King Cora? It's K-I-N-K-O-R-A, but it's in every single one of our show notes because we credit her for our theme song. So if you Google that, it'll come up on Triple J Unearthed. Firstly, she's got the best voice ever. Like, you are just going to love it. She's an amazing songwriter. Since we were little, we've known each other since we were three years old, and she's always been the best songwriter. Like, we remember writing these hilarious songs together when we were, like, 15 years old about breaking up with boys and she's just amazing. I'm so excited for her. So you've got to listen to the song, but also the video clip that she's done for it is genius. I don't want to give too much away, but it involves a flash mob, some Zoom calls, and a little spoiler alert, me, Renan, and Panther all make a tiny little cameo in it. So if you check out her Facebook page, King Cora, you will find the video there. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I'm going to go listen to it straight after this. Awesome. Yay. Well, also very excited about today's episode because it is with the wonderful Anna Ross, who is the founder of Kester Black, that amazing vegan and cruelty-free nail polish that you might know and you might love. Wow. What a woman is this? I'm so excited to get into today's episode. Anna takes us through her journey with running Kester Black, how she's doing things different to a lot of other businesses, which got us really, really thinking about the way that we run ours and also her whole sustainability and cruelty-free journey with Kester Black. This is a great listen. You are in for a treat. Stick around to the end of the episode to hear what we're going to be gabbing about next week. And here is the wonderful Anna Ross. I feel like you have being an entrepreneur down, it sounds like, (laughs) because those are the types of things that we fantasize about doing. Like we want to go live somewhere else. But then, you know, we always come back to like, oh, but our business is based here. So we have to stay. And you just seem like you've got it all down. We were just talking about that though, about getting the office and isn't getting the office the dream, right? And then I was like, whoa, this is not what I expected. I have to stay here and I have to pay (laughs) rent. And then we got rid of the office and we'd just essentially go to Europe three times a year because we so coincidentally got manufacturers in Italy and France. So we always go over to Italy and France and we always go back for the trade fair. So we're always going over there. So we just like stay for two months at a time. So we kind of live in both places 
which has been awesome actually. Is that you and your partner? Yes. So Fergus was medical research and then I told him off about a year ago and said, what are you doing? Like we're so restricted by your job. You should just quit your job and come work for me. So he did and it's been amazing. Oh my God. I make him do all the stuff I don't want to do like logistics and stock ordering and finance things. Sounds like the perfect arrangement. It is. (laughs) So we'd love to hear what you were doing before you started Black. Yeah, I uh, went to Otago Polytech and studied fashion because when I was a kid, I used to buy all those craft books where you would make paper mache poppies and things like that. So I've always been somebody to do something with my hands. So I just love fabrics and colours. And so I studied fashion design and then I asked my mum for the $20,000 to start a business and she said, no, move overseas and get some experience. So I came to Melbourne and started making jewellery. So Kester Black started as a jewellery label And we sold at Life with Bird and we had about 50 stockists or so. And I was just working in retail. And then I wanted to make coloured sterling silver rings. And I knew that you could colour sterling silver with enamel paint. I trialled that. It was a disaster. And then I thought, we'll just make nail polish to go with the rings, which we never ended up making. And we made six colours. I was, I guess it was just me back then. And tripled our business revenue in three months. (laughs) So I was like, nail polish is it. So we just went straight into cosmetics from there. Wow, that is so cool. So it was kind of by accident. And everybody talks about this like famous pivot and it was never intended. It was just luck. Yeah, it sounds like a bit of a fairy tale story, I guess. And it is still pivoting. And even within our business, you know, we have a footwear brand and maybe from the outside, it's always been a footwear brand and we've never really pivoted. But I feel like we're constantly faced with opportunities to pivot and change and be a bit dynamic but there's always this element of fear to start something new to let go of what you had so like in that transition period where you were like oh this nail polish is doing really well but now I have to stop making jewelry was there fear around like failure not in stopping making the jewellery, but there was in committing to the cosmetics. So the jewellery was just a hobby for me and an expression of what I wanted to do creatively. And it was always a part-time job. So I still had a full-time job. I was safe. But when I quit my full-time job and went straight into Kester Black full-time, that was the main fear. I thought about it for about six months and I called everybody and everybody just said, if you do it, it will work. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll just, I hate uncertainty. <laughs> so... I did it and it worked. You just have to make it work, don't you? I think that that's what the point of being an entrepreneur is, is you just make it work when it seems against all odds. And I did start the business with $50, so it was very scary. It's actually a question that we get asked a lot by people. How do you know, like, when is the moment that you transition and you leave the full-time job and you go into it? What was it about it that you knew it was the right time? Do you ever know the answer to that question? No. (laughs) We don't. (laughs) That's why we're asking you. (laughs) No, there's no time that you know, you know. The scariest thing I've ever done in my business was sign a lease. And it was about the time that I quit my job and signing a five-year lease. That just meant that we were committed financially to this long-term decision. So I actually called my mum crying about five times and I don't usually call my mum about business things, but I just couldn't work out whether I should do it or not. And I just thought, stuff up, I'll just give it a go. So I don't feel like you know. But I think 
being able to make it work. As you said, I think that that is such a powerful thing and it's so true. There's nothing like that drive that you feel when it's your livelihood and it's your baby and you need to make it work. If you go out to sell nail polishes to boutiques, you're not coming home until you (laughs) sold enough nail polishes that day. You know, like that's how we felt with our brand. Like when we're going out to like introduce ourselves to boutiques, sometimes we'll take team members and they're like, oh, I'm tired. And we're like, next one. (laughs) You just don't have a choice when it's yours. It's funny because the nail polish sales at the start was so easy. Because I had a full-time job, I just did emails on Sundays. And everybody responds on a Sunday because store owners, of course, have Sunday off. So they're always on email catching up on things on Sunday. So it was easy to get stockers for the nail polish. It was harder to maintain them. And there have been lots of times in my business where I've thought, what am I doing? For two years, we were almost insolvent and we couldn't make any money. We had a huge start. And then once we signed the lease and got a whole lot of staff, we overstaffed at about eight we actually operate best at about four to five. So we we're paying all this money in wages for staff that we didn't need, but I was in total denial that the business was working and it wasn't. And I got really bad financial advice and he said, you've got to go and get all of the lines of credit now that you possibly can so that you can use them in the future. And he said, don't save any of your tax because I used to put all my tax away so I would never spend it. He said, don't save your tax. You've got to like cash flow the stock and buy heaps of stock. So we bought heaps of stock, like five years worth of stock once. It was such a disaster. Oh, no. And then we didn't make the sales that we thought we would and that he forecast. And I believed all these other people. It was actually at the point where I started to listen to other people and not go with how I would do things. And for two years, it was horror and terror. And every night I used to have a panic attack and then lie awake in bed for four or five hours going, oh, my God, there's no way out, though, because at that point we'd taken on so much debt. So we borrowed money. Before, any time I wanted to, I could have walked away because we were never in debt. And so we actually only came out of it about mid last year. So it was pretty scary. But I felt like there was no other option but to move forward because I would let all of the people that I owed money to down. I love how open you are that you've just like come in, sit down and just been like, yep, I'm pulling the curtain back and this is all the stuff that's gone wrong. But I think it's always so interesting to hear that about a brand because you only really see the shiny, pretty stuff. Success stories. Where's the backstory, you know? Exactly. Even within success, I think something that we've learned more recently is there's such a minuscule difference between what success looks like and what being insolvent looks like. Yeah. Yeah. And (laughs) we're all just kind of treading the line and you're one product order away from either. Yeah, my boyfriend, when I talked him into coming to work for me, he was on a pretty good wage. I said, don't worry, I'll keep the wage, like we can afford it. And he comes and works for me and next minute he's getting paid 25 grand (laughs) because I've always seen the opportunity of Kester Black is on sale. You know, like if we ever was to sell the business to say an Estee Lauder or an LVMH, It's on sale. The hope and dreams I think of an entrepreneur is the lifestyle. Although you have to work like a dog, you get to work from anywhere sometimes. Depends how your business is set up. And depends what pandemics are hitting the world at the time. (laughs) It does. And then the other part is like you will take shit wage and you will work 24 hours a day for 10, 12 years. And then at the sale, that's when it's all worth it. So I think I've always thought about it like that because if I thought about it as 
I'm only getting paid 20 grand this year or one year I took 150 grand and it was amazing and then it had a negative impact to the business the next year. So we've had to change the wages around and what I've realised out of it all is I don't really need money because it doesn't matter if I'm taking 150 grand from the business or $20,000 from the business. My lifestyle never seems to change. And that's all I really want is like health and happiness and um, the ability to travel or go hiking on the weekends or skiing or whatever it is. So I think I've even resolved myself now to this idea of a big sale at the end. And I'm quite happy just to keep doing it because I actually love my business and I really like the challenges that I face every day. Well, yeah, absolutely. And it's so much about that process. I think that if you end the sentence with, and I love my business, that means that we're enjoying our every day. And that's a lot more than other people can say that are taking home the $150,000 salary. And would we change it? I don't think we would. That doesn't really sound like a fun trade-off. How much more is it about the process than the end goal? It's funny. It's like, I've always thought, could I give my business up now and go and get a full-time job? And the questions I've always asked is, who would hire me? Because people don't like entrepreneurs I think because they're too used to having things their own way and so becoming an employee is really difficult and what would I do if I'd have to go into a role where it was quite structured to get that kind of money I'd just be doing one thing and only be responsible for one thing and I don't feel like it would be really dynamic I mean I'm our creative director but I could happily step back if you wanted to step into the role (laughs) (laughs) if you were looking (laughs) creative stuff is really interesting as well because that's what really drew me to having my own business and now I'm like oh I just wish I could give this to a photographer and they just deal with it all so it's almost like photography and photo shoots and styling are the hardest parts of my job and I love zero and reconciling our bank accounts and doing like admin things like stock sheets or stock transfers and things like that. So I've always been a mix of like super creative and really admin driven. Oh, you guys sound really similar. <laughs> you could just slip right into yeah, Jess's yeah. role. I have the exact same thing. Well, because I think that one is more daunting. The creative stuff, while so exciting and so much fun, it's just overwhelming from the outside. Whereas like I know if I'm doing an Excel spreadsheet, I just have to click that box and click that box and yeah. click that box. And at the end of the day, it will be done no matter what happens. That's yeah. why I'm a designer because I work within the rules, right? I could never be an artist. But it's scary when you go to a shoot and you know you spent $20,000 on it. And we've done this quite a few times where we just throw the photos out because they never got there. Jess always says this, that you say like at the beginning of a shoot, it's so weird that like this could go any which way today and you just kind of don't have that much I can't handle the uncertainty. On a morning of a shoot, I feel like Steph is really excited and I am like, I hate this day. I just need it to be over and I need to know how it ended. Yeah, see, (laughs) because I'm not creative. So I feel like I trust the creatives. I'm like, everybody's got this. Two seasons ago, we had a really shit shoot that we weren't happy with and we didn't have the foresight to kind of say, oh, well, we should just throw the photos out. So we still published them and we didn't like them. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's so hard though with creatives because everybody really has their own vision and creative thinkers often are really visual so you get two or three creatives this is the risk that have never worked together before and everybody's trying to draw the shoot in whichever way they want and what other people's styles are are really quite different to your own brand imagery Mm. and Kester Black has such a strong brand presence well 
I don't know if we can say that because we've just done a, a review of all of our assets and they're all over the place. It's a shit show. Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's strong from the outside. From the outside, it is super sleek and oh, strong. Oh, it's going to be much sleeker soon. We've just spent the last six months redoing our entire tone of voice copywriting. Like our packaging got done last year and we love it. But we've got to sort of get the rest of the brand up to that presentation standard. Well, we would love to chat to you about that creative side because when you're talking about you stumbled into nail polish accidentally, that's so interesting because from the outside, again, everything that you do seems so thought out. And one of the things that strikes us when we look at Kester Black that seems really clever and thought out, but keen to hear if it is or not, is, you know, most nail polish brands are just stocked in a pharmacy, whereas like Kester Black is more of an accessory coming from your fashion background, were those things that you strategically did or was it just like a natural kind of process? That was strategic. It's probably the only strategic thing I've ever done in my business. So when we launched Nail Polish and it started going really well and I knew that it was going to be a cosmetics brand, I looked at our competitors and thought, well, how could indie beauty brands ever break into the market big time? So I noticed that most of those big brands were at pharmacies and department stores. And I thought, well, if we can't get into pharmacies and department stores, where could we go? And we already had stockists with our jewellery line and they were often homewares and fashion stores. So the way that we introduced the brand and the way that I knew that it would be successful is we leveraged our relationships that we already had. We talked about colour as a fashion accessory and that was, of course, from my background. We also launched ranges in a fashion calendar. So I always launched summer and winter ahead of all of the other buyers because I knew the buying schedule. So if you go to a store five weeks before all the other brands start coming to them and they've spent all their budget, you've always got to be ahead of everybody else. Great tip. Yeah, we worked six months ahead like fashion does, but six months to a year ahead. Often we would do the colour development altogether, so we'd do the whole year. And then we would approach all of the stores a month before we knew everybody else was dropping all their fashion brands. And then we would always get placement in the stores because we were the first in line for the budget. I think it's such a clever way that you've gone about it. And even talking about it between the two of us, we were like, well, how could we take that learning and apply it to our brand? You know, we have a footwear brand, so we're always talking to footwear buyers in department stores, but maybe we're looking at it in the wrong way. You know, maybe we should be looking to sit alongside clothing. And so do you think that this kind of thinking is a mentality that people could adopt if they wanted to try to get into a market that seems saturated, but if they flip it on its head like you have, it might not be? I think the trick to this is to do something that you haven't been trained to do. So I took my training in fashion and knowing the buying calendar and the schedule and how to do costing of goods is a really good example of uh, that's where I learned at fashion school. And then going into another area where you don't necessarily have the skills, like I didn't know anything about cosmetics when I went into that. And I didn't even think that there was going to be a barrier between taking a cosmetics product and putting it into a fashion store. And it's just because if you then grow up in the cosmetics industry that's thinking outside the box. But when you're trying to solve problems in an industry that you know nothing about, it's just natural, like it's an innate kind of problem solving that you have. And I've always seen in fashion specifically that the people who make it in fashion never studied fashion. They're never bound by those rules. They just come in, they usually study architecture or sculpture or something like that. And they're always super, super, super successful because they're not restricted by their knowledge. 
That's so interesting. That's something we've discussed because we're not footwear designers. And sometimes when we spend too much time with footwear designers, we start to get bogged down by the details. Yeah. Like what angle the foot needs to be on in order for it to be most comfortable. And we're like, we don't care. We just want it to look like this. Can you do that or not? And you take care of those details. Yeah. That's your technical ability. Well, because yeah. I think that people naturally sometimes just go to the no really quickly. But if you're coming in from the outside and you've got this naivety about you and you don't realize that it can't be done you're kind of inspiring other people to challenge what they're usually going to say no to and think all right okay wait how could we actually do this we've never really thought about it before oh no and it's always the fresh questions right asking the right questions that's the answer to the problem it's not the response that you get from the questions it's always asking the right questions because if you ask the right question that person's always challenged by that and then they really question their knowledge or limiting beliefs in it so I've always found just don't look at the problem too hard from your technical ability and just think outside the square. I think it comes from being creative as well, though. I was the kind of kid at school who never handed in homework, but I worked out the system. The teacher always used to mark the homework books and then put them on a big pile. And then an hour later, she would go and tick off the list on the wall for all the people that had done the homework. So I worked out pretty early on that you didn't actually have to do your homework. You just had to get your book in the list when she was ticking it off against the wall. So I didn't do homework for like two and a half years. That's so clever. (laughs) I love that. Isn't that terrible? I mean, I've got lots of examples of how I winged all my exams and things by asking my friends at other schools what books they were reading. And then I would just watch the movie and write my essays off the movies that I watched three years in a row. Same essay, three years in a row. I memorized the essay from watching the movie instead. And I never read a book in English ever. I love that. We call that chutzpah. That's amazing. (laughs) I still can't read those. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and look where you are. It doesn't matter. You didn't need it. Thank God for Audible because now I don't even have to bother. You know, as an entrepreneur, I find the hardest thing at the end of the day is that my eyes don't work anymore from looking at my screen. So I listen to everything that I read. It's awesome. (laughs) I'm so fascinated by your business because hearing from you speak, I can tell and I know from the reputation as well that, you know, it's big. But then to hear you say things like, you know, we don't have an office anymore and the perfect amount of staff for us is between four and five. I feel like everything that you do is just debunking what running a business is, which is so cool and makes me feel inspired because sometimes I feel like I hate running a business. Yeah. It's funny when you say like that success or how big our business is. I find that when you speak to entrepreneurs, a lot of the people that I speak to, we're all of similar size. So we've got friends that have a hair extension company and their average order value is $350 because that's how much one costs. So we have similar sized businesses revenue-wise, but for us to get to where they're at revenue-wise, we have to send like 10,000 more units (laughs) a month than they do. So our business is really complex. It's got three revenue streams, distribution, retail, and direct-to-consumer. And then we have like a salon trade-only arm. So it's kind of like four different ways of making money, four different types of customers that all need to be managed really differently. Then we've got stock coming from France, that's six months lead time. We've got stock coming from Australia, which is one month lead time. So we've got to forecast all of our sales and then order the right amount of stock And we usually have to pay for it up front if it's coming from Europe. So there's $100,000 invoices before we even get anything shipped. And then it's on the water for two months. So it's a really complex business. Our business is still quite small revenue-wise, but it's 
really complex. Mm, like even if you're selling a lot of products, yeah. that doesn't necessarily equal big revenue. And that was actually something we wanted to ask you about because we, you know, are constantly playing with price and having that experience of selling a small, cheaper product. Do you feel like there's a sweet spot if somebody was going to get into a product business or is it just we all face challenges at our various price points and if you were selling a $300 product, it would be harder to sell that $300 product? I have the answer. Great. <laughs> that you're we're here to listen. So the key to a really successful, scalable business is recurring revenue, right? So a consumable item. So something that somebody comes back for a lot of times because if you get one hair extension and you cut it in and it looks amazing, you generally don't need another one. Or if it's shoes, maybe it's seasonal, but it depends on the price point. You know, like a Hobes pair of shoes at $300 or $400 is kind of like a once-in-a-lifetime buy. And there are women that can afford to go back quite often. But what I found, especially by doing markets, is the sweet spot for price is between $20 and $50. So if you can get a product that's between $20 to $50, that's consumable, that people come back for. And Frank Body really thought it through when they made it able to be posted in an envelope mm. and not a parcel. Oh, yeah. It's so funny that you say that. I remember being at a party with AM, your friend, and one of the founders of Frank was there and he was telling us about how they were about to launch and about the envelope and about how it was so brilliant because it could just fit in an envelope and you just needed a stamp. Yep. <laughs> I heard them speak about the envelope. It was like, instead of paying 8 or $9 to ship your $20 product, it actually only costs $1. So thinking about freight costs first is really, really important. And it's not something that I learned about at fashion school because we were dealing with high cost items. You go and buy a jacket or something and you're kind of talking around between $200 and $1,000 plus. So freight wasn't really an issue when we were thinking about it like that. But what we didn't factor in was how much even just Australia Post freight would be at $8 a parcel and what point you work that out. So we've just done a test recently where we were doing $5 shipping and we put it up to $8 shipping and it hasn't affected our sales whatsoever because we've had a look around and realised that even Mecca and GoTo and all of our other, not competitors, but peers, were charging like $8 or $9 or $10 for shipping and we were charging five. So we were kind of like, weren't making it work that well. So basically we should all just close our businesses and start $20 to $50 businesses that are flat backed. Yeah. Cool, got it. <laughs> and you touched on them being consumable there and we actually read something about you and consumerism and that, you know, you're not really into consumerism, which made us laugh but also made us <laughs> Every kind day, of excited me too. <laughs> because – we also hate consumerism. You know, we love the environment and all that good stuff. But then there's this flip side of it where it's like, well, we need to sell shoes in order to make our business work. And it's kind of like this juggling act, kind of like a seesaw. So how does that look within your business? So I guess the question, because I've always struggled with that myself as well, is how to make consumerism good. So I guess the concept when I started the nail polish was, well, nail polish is a crap product and you don't need it, and it is a consumer-driven product. Like people think that they need it or want it or buy it, so they buy a lot of it. So there was this sort of temporary answer, I guess. Well, if people were going to buy it anyway, because people don't really want to change their habits around consumerism, then why not make a crap product like nail polish 
in the best possible way that we can and take those funds that we make from that and put it back into communities and support sustainable communities and different projects like that. So the way that I thought about doing it a few years ago was just making sure that everything in our supply chain was really transparent, which drew us to getting all of the accreditation, so vegan and cruelty-free. And then we've got B Corp since then and carbon neutral. So if you buy from us, you know that the product is good and that we've put in all the thought behind it to make sure that it is as sustainable as possible. And then we also started donating 2% of our revenue back into the community and focusing on more sustainable products. There are so many layers to think about. And, you know, we think about those things as well all the time, like a compostable mailer is great, but then once you put the sticker on it, it's no longer compostable. So there are so many things to think about. And we love about your brand that there are so many elements to it that are so thoughtful. What drove that for you? Why was that important for you to bring that to the business? Because of the complex that I had around consumerism, right? (laughs) So it's just common sense, you know, like why would you put animals or animal products in nail polish? Just doesn't make any sense. So I was like, oh, well, we won't do that. I mean, I grew up on a farm and I ate a steak every single day of my life until I was like 20. And then I hadn't even thought about it. That's just how I grew up. Like I was all in for animal welfare, but I had this disconnect about eating meat. And it actually wasn't until I'd started Kester Black that I really started to think about that because it was common sense, right? So we made it vegan and cruelty-free and then these jiffy mailers and things like that, people see it. It's important. It's part of your brand presence and experience for the customer. So it's got to be on point. But then people literally look at it once and throw it away. So we did the compostable mailers and then we found out that actually curbside recycling in Australia doesn't do soft plastics. So we've gone to paper and we're getting all of our jiffy bags made out of paper now by a company called Grounded Packaging, just FYI, if anybody wants to know. They're amazing and really competitive on price. That's great to know. We are actually going satchel free. Wow. We're very excited because shoes come in a box already and and it's just the done thing. Like you said, it's, oh, well, it was always done that way, but that doesn't mean it's always supposed to be done that way. So instead now our shoes will just come in their box with sticky tape and our 3PL have kind of said to us, people might start to steal them and whatever. And we're like, well, if that happens, we'll deal with it. But let's just see if we can make this work because the idea of selling 3,000 pairs of shoes in a season and not having 3,000 satchels out there, that makes a huge difference. Huge. You mentioned that you guys are a B Corp. What is that for people who don't know? So it's an accreditation that took us three years to get. So it was really hard, but I would recommend everybody who owns a business to look at it. So being accredited and doing the questionnaire, I feel like have the same merit because if you commit to doing the questionnaire, it exposes all the parts of your business that you'd never thought of where you weren't sustainable or where you weren't ethical. That's why it took us three years because we did it and we didn't get the points. It's a points-based system. I think you have to have 80. And I think we only got 50. And so we had to do a lot of work to make up the extra 30 points. And it comes from like different parts of the business. So there's governance and staff and production and the questionnaire. I don't know how many versions of it it has, but essentially it changes with every single answer you provide. So there must be thousands of versions of this questionnaire because maybe governance doesn't apply to your business, but you can still get the points even if you cut out one whole quarter of the questionnaire. So I thought we were sustainable and then we did the questionnaire 
And I was like, whoa, we've got so many places to improve. So we rewrote our entire procedures manual, like our staff handbook, and we changed all the fittings in our office to make sure that they were water-saving heads for the taps. We went carbon-neutral energy, so we did hydro and then offset carbon emissions anyway. So there's so many things to think through. And it was the most worthwhile thing I think I've ever done because it made me think about sustainability in a really new way. And it just provides our customers with a guarantee that what we say we're doing is what we're actually doing, plus a million times more behind the scenes. Like what you get face value at Kester Black is just, we've got these five accreditations and we do this. But that's kind of half the reason why we stopped having an office because I felt like it used resources that we didn't actually need. I love that you're doing all these things. It's so obviously driven by what you care about. Do you think that it makes a difference in how people purchase and people's love of the brand? For our brand, I think it does. It's a real shame though, because I feel like this is what every brand should be doing. And people coming to us because we're sustainable and I'm going, but well, why aren't there just more sustainable brands to choose from? So it's lucky for us in our business that we get all those customers who care about that stuff. But it's a real shame that there's not more options to choose from for those people. I also feel like it's a growing thing. Gen Z will be the ones that really care. It's ever evolving. I feel like we were really ahead of the times and people didn't really get it when we were doing it four years ago and nobody actually cared. But now it's a niche thing. And actually all the big companies like Estee Lauder and LVMH are looking at brands like us because we have a point of difference in sustainability and they can't do sustainability. So that is by brands that can do it. Mm. So there has been like a good thing and a bad thing for Kester Black that that's been how it is. And the more that you lean into that and the more you do it, the more you're an example for other brands. I know within our shoe brand, people love to refer to us as eco because we're vegan. And then we look at something like Kester Black and we're like, look how much more we could be doing, you know. So this is how everyone should run their business. But for the time being when everyone isn't, it's great to have that as an example. Yeah. Well, and I have seen a lot of changes, especially in nail polish and cosmetics. There was another brand, Inica, who was doing this when we started and nobody else really. And now all of the nail polish brands are pretty much vegan and cruelty-free. And even one of them has gone to the lengths that it took us to get all of our accreditation. So we've got one serious competitor in Australia, but the rest of them aren't that far behind. You know, like at least everybody's doing vegan and cruelty-free and made in Australia, for example. So I felt like it has made a difference, which is great for all Australian consumers, you know. Yeah. That's positive for everybody, but... It would be really nice if Kester Black was made more of an example, like on a bigger platform, like if we got investment from a big company and we could actually talk about our values and brand positioning globally and then get everybody else thinking about it as well, rather than just in Australia. Something else that I've seen that's pretty cool come up is some like vegan nail bars popping up around and I always poke my head in and I say, oh, there, yeah, they've got Kester Black. <laughs> that's cool as well because you're influencing other industries as beauty salons. So that's cool that beauty salons can become vegan. Why wouldn't we support them? It's so interesting. It's been so important though when we go overseas to have this green beauty ethical positioning. We get into a lot of our distributors for the ethical positioning, but there are a few brands like us and they're all being bought out at the moment by some bigger company, I hope to be made a really good example from. 
Awesome. Well, maybe your call's up next. <laughs> Who knows? Let's see what happens with COVID. Well, although we were up 900% during March and April, we couldn't cope. This is when we don't have a warehouse and we are packing a thousand orders a week from our apartment in the CBT. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so it's been a nightmare and I'm a bit tired, but fingers crossed. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a bad problem to have as well. No. This has been so incredible. A, I can't believe we haven't met before. <laughs> no. But also, I feel like we have so much to learn from you. So I'm really, really excited that we got to connect today. And I hope that we can continue this relationship as well as we embark on our sustainability journey with our footwear label because I feel like you have so much knowledge and I just want it. <laughs> well, if you ever want to do B Corp, I can send you our application so that you've got all of your pre-written stuff because when you find a question that you don't have something written for, you have to go away and do it. So oh, thank send me an email. You. <laughs> awesome. Well, we wrap up all of our interviews with some quick fire questions. So we might just ask you them quickly. I love what color you're wearing today. You're wearing like this really great baby blue. But what colour do you usually have on your nails or is it that? It's funny because it's blue but really pale, pale, pale blue whereas I find this quite a, a vivid baby blue. Sky is the colour. Is that your favourite colour to wear? Sky usually is but I've just decided, I wonder if it's COVID inspired, that I need more bright colours. So this is Cumulus and we actually discontinued it and I'm bringing it back. <laughs> I love it's it. It's a really nice color. I think I have Sky at home. Isn't it funny how, I don't know if you get this, with nail polish, I always find that someone else is wearing a color and I'm like, oh, that looks really great on them. And then I put it on myself and I'm like, it doesn't look the same on me, but I know I'm being silly and I, I, I think I've it's had confidence. that with your color. I'm like, <laughs> oh, I really like that. But I feel like, mm. It's taken me six years because this would be one of the original colors. It's taken me six years to go, oh, it does look good. I see it look great on everybody else, but I've never like had the guts to do it myself and I think it's a confidence thing yeah you're rocking it it looks great <laughs> what is the app that you use the most insight timer it's like just a meditation timer I use it twice a day two hours so I guess that's probably the app that I use the most I'm sorry twice a day how long <laughs> you meditate for two hours in the day we do an hour in the morning and if we're really good we do an hour at night it's heaven. That's amazing. It, is, it is heaven I sometimes think of it as a chore but actually it's heaven yeah. Do you use a guided one on Inside Timer or you just use it as the timer? I don't use the guided ones from Insight Timer. I use another one called Undo App. I find that that guy just gives way more depth and more life knowledge because I feel like meditation really is the key to life. But when you get somebody who talks only about meditation, they don't really know how to connect it to life. So Undo App for guided meditations. Do you prefer a manicure or a pedicure? A manicure. Mm. I feel like it's cruel to make somebody have to touch my feet. <laughs> and they're nice feet, you know. It's just a feet thing. <laughs> <laughs> I much prefer a pedicure, actually. Yeah, same. I love a full massage. Mm. I'll just skip the pedicure and have the massage. <laughs> and I do the manicure myself. I'm pretty happy with that. Whereas, yeah, like, with my feet, you know, you got to grab them and then they're up in your face. It's too hard to do by yourself. I love a manicure because I get to go to Trophy Life and I love catching up with Chelsea. Good one. Oh, uh, yeah. What do you miss most about New Zealand, which could also be reframed for what? What is the thing you're most excited about with going back to New Zealand? The scenery, the smell. Oh, my God, there's just everything. The food. Oh, the people. <laughs> just living in a house which has floor-to-ceiling windows that look straight out onto a lake and then seeing the wind and the rain and the sun and the pure water. Like the lake at Wanaka only changes one degree between the seasons. So it's always five or six degrees. And I just love that water, especially in summer. 
what the fuck are we all doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Come and stay. Last question. If you did a collaboration with Kester Black, like the dream collaboration, what would it be? Well, if it has to go back to fashion, maybe with Ganny. Good. (laughs) I feel like our brands are really similar. Or... Maybe Stella McCartney. Not visually as similar. Values-based. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, thank you so, so much. (laughs) Thank you for having me. Oh, how incredible was that chat? It was pretty amazing how we'd never met Anna. And when we sat down with her, it was less of an interview and more just an amazing chat with old friends is what it felt like. She has so much awesome knowledge and we were just so keen to soak it up. So... Hope you enjoyed soaking it up too. And if you did, we would just love to ask you to help us get the word out about this podcast because you, wonderful person listening, telling your friends about it is how people hear about it. So feel free to copy the link and just send it on over to a friend. You could leave us five stars wherever you're listening. And of course, make sure you come on over and join the after chat. Come have an after party with us. We're on Instagram at How to Live the Podcast and Facebook, How to Live the Podcast. Next week, right here, it's going to be the two of us chatting all about social media and how to grow a following in 2020. Take a listen. There are all these hacks that people use to quickly gain followers. But if you think about it, what are you doing that for? That's really for people's perception. It's really so people go, oh, this is so cool. And yeah, there is something to be said for like having clout to your brand or service, but I don't think you need hundreds of thousands of followers for that clout. Nowadays, you want a good steady base of followers, but it's really much more about the quality of those followers and are they actually engaged in your community and Are they interested in the product or service that you're providing? We cannot wait to chat all things social media with you next week. And in the meantime, go download King Cora's new single, Set Me Free, and thank me later. Love you. Bye.